Welcome back everyone to the Together for Action 2020 podcast. This is Andre from The Mental Elf and I'm here today with Professor Erwin Sandler who is Regents Professor Emeritus and Research Professor with the REACH Institute and the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Uh, his Together for Action 2020 keynote talk is taking place on the 8th of October and it will be on promoting resilience in children and families impacted by adversities focusing specifically on bereavement and divorce. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Erwin, and thanks very much for joining us to share your work today. Um, let me ask you, first of all, about adversities. So we know that multiple adversities threaten the healthy development and well-being of children and young people. And of course, we currently have a very special set of circumstances globally with this coronavirus pandemic. And we know from research that that's amplifying existing inequalities for people. So when we think about the health and well-being of children and young people, what do you think are the most important adversities that governments and health systems should be focusing on right now? Thank you, Andre. That's a great question. When we look at what's happening right now and its impact on children's mental health and well-being and families, uh, well-being, we have to think about how it affects their daily lives. We know that one of the ways that big adversities like hurricanes and, um, well, in my case, bereavement and um, abuse, um, one of the ways they impact people is through their impact on people's daily lives. It's what researchers have called daily hassles. So big events, and if you can look at the COVID as a big worldwide event, it's a disruption in the way we live. And the way that translates into a threat to people's well-being, to children's well-being, is the way it impacts what they experience in their daily lives and their ability to satisfy their basic needs and developmental competencies. So how does that translate into COVID? One of the things that happens in, is happening in COVID is immense um, fear and uncertainty and anxiety. Um, and that gets translated into children's world through what they see in the media and through what they see in their families and their parents and their caregivers' reaction. So part of the task, and this becomes both a public and a private task, is to create a sense of competence and security that recognizes what's happening. It's not Pollyannish. It's not saying, let's make things normal, because they're not normal but create a sense that we're all dealing with this and we're all dealing with it together. And yes, there's this threat. There's a threat to people's health and we wanna protect that by all means. And we know things we can do and we're doing them at the public level, at the government level, providing answers in a consistent voice and that are realistic to people's everyday life. Um, and at the family level, taking stock of how it's 
impacting your daily routines. But there's more than that. And this gets particularly into the government and um, systems level. And that is, at least in the United States, and I believe around the world, it's tremendous economic stress. People are losing their jobs. Um, I saw a report yesterday that 60% of Americans are experiencing threats to their economic well-being, things like ability to pay their rent, um, buy what they need for day, to meet their daily needs. You can't underestimate, you can't overestimate, if you will, the effect of that kind of threat and how that pervades the whole family environment then trickles down to the children. So what governments can do and need to do is to attend to the economic well-being of people who are impacted. And of course, as in most things that happen in society, there are serious um, discrepancies between the haves and the have-nots. And the have-nots are impacted much more than the haves. So government policies that provide economic support for those who really need it is imperative. Another way, and this is particularly to children, but also to adults, is a major disruption in children's lives is their schooling. Again, this is both a government level, a school system level, and an individual family and child level problem. At the government and school system level, particularly at the government level, schools need help. It is really complex to do what we're asking them to do. And we can't pretend that, oh, just go back to normal because it's not normal. And everybody knows it's not normal. You can't be, we're going to ignore the threat to health, but we're not going to ignore um, kids' need for school, to learn, to be part of their routine. Schools need extra resources in order to do the task that society needs them to do. So that's really at a government level. At a family level, what that translates into is parents kind of digging in with their kids. And this is hugely difficult um, to support them in coping with if they're doing schooling from home, which many, many people are, um, support them in working through the natural expected kinks in that system, because it's not all going to be absolutely smooth. Um, and to support them in their frustration when things don't go as well as they want. It's not them. There's nothing wrong with them that their computer is crashing. Um, and together, and together is really the key word, we're gonna figure out what to do. But the final thing, I think this again at a government level, at an agency level, a health systems level is, and I think this is happening, is to, to gear up massively on telehealth. Um, what we're learning about telehealth out of necessity is actually a pretty good story emerging from, uh, from people's experience. We can provide a lot of, particularly the supportive services uh, that we need to, to provide through telehealth. Um, it takes training. 
it takes support staff to do it right. Um, and this is where the partnership between government and our health system comes in. Um, but it can be done. And so there needs to be a lot of gearing up in that direction. I wanted to ask you, you know, why, why you first became interested in this area, why you were driven to study this field um, and what you think others can learn from the approach that you've taken and maybe um, bring to bear in their own fields. I got interested in the area of adversity, of things that happen in people's lives that literally drive them crazy. Um, and I got interested in that when I worked in um, uh, um, uh, inner city area in Arizona. I didn't start out as an academic. I started out as a kind of an on the ground, what I saw as community psychologist. And I saw it was happening in the community. My, my office was in a housing project and I saw it was happening in the community. And when you see it, you can't ignore that the problems people are having are directly related to all the stresses happening around them. So then when I moved over to the university and so I started writing papers about adversity. What is it about adversity that leads to health problems, mental health problems, depression, suicide, drug abuse? Um, and just from an academic point of view, I got really interested in that question. Um, we were able to get a center in the United States to, um, as a prevention approach, to approach prevention of mental health problems through intervening in adversities that impact children. And I, I was director of the center. And we had a wide range of, uh, of adversities that we studied. And one of them was divorce and one of them was bereavement. So I was on a number of teams. And the thing I learned there, and the reason I kind of honed in, if you will, on divorce and bereavement is that every adversity you deal with has its own profile. It has its own way of disrupting people's lives and it has its own community that is interested in it. And one of the things I've learned is that if you have, if you want to look to the future in terms of your impact of your work on the families and the children that you care about, you need to really dig in to that adversity um, and the community that has an interest, a stake in that adversity. So that really speaks to long-term commitment and following um, where your work leads. And it becomes kind of collaborative work, honestly, uh, because you develop relationships in those support communities. So um, that's sort of why I, why and how I came to, to focus on, on those two. And, and I can just give you a brief snapshot of how it started out in the, the area of bereavement. I didn't know anything about bereavement when I, when I went into it. I, I wasn't the lead author on, or the lead investigator on, on, on that team when we started out. But one of the things we started out doing was hanging around with people who had a life commitment to working with bereaved families. And the first year we actually spent um, networking with funeral homes um, because we thought that that would be um, an, an obvious place where we could reach people who were experiencing the death of a parent. Well, we learned a lot, 
and I learned a lot from, uh, but we also found out through the relationships we developed that there are some heroes out there that are doing great work. They don't have any science behind them. They don't know anything about quotes, research about resilience. They actually don't know what levers to push, if you will, um, what key resilience resources are important to promote in order to um, um, promote the well-being of bereaved children. They have ideas that they, they have clinical ideas, and some of them are very, very wise. Um, but research can help. So our approach was to contribute to do our part. And our part is to bring the voice of research to the people with a significant stake in this adversity. People, and I'll say it again, many of these people are, uh, are commit, committed to this area um, at an amazing level and do heroic work. So our job, if you will, or I saw it as my job, um, is to do the science part. Um, not that that's any smarter than what they bring, but that it brings tools to help them do what they are trying to do. So we do a lot of research on to try and discover the sources of resilience. The basic concept of resilience is that children, I'll use the example of bereavement, children who experience a major disruption, trauma, if you will, of the death of a parent, um, are, um, are very stressed. It's the most difficult thing that, that, uh, that can happen in a child's life. Um, but most of them make it. Most of them do okay. Not that they escape the pain, but in terms of their life course, they can still lead lives of satisfaction, of relatively no more impacted in terms of their health or mental health than anybody else. But some don't. And actually a substantial proportion don't. Substantial proportion, this moves the trajectory of their lives in a negative direction so that they're more vulnerable to prolonged grief um, and how that disrupts their worldview and their relationships to people to mental health problems, particularly depression, they're more at risk for suicide, um, and they're more at risk for developmental problems like uh, problems in academic competence. Um, so again, from a resilience research point of view, the question is why? What separates one group from the other? Why do some people do well and some people suffer long-term problems. And we can make a lot of progress on that. And that tells us, what indicates, doesn't tell us, because there's not a lot of certainty in this world, that indicates places where we can potentially make a difference. So that's why we constructed at that time what was called the Family Bereavement Program. Uh, we now, um, <clears throat> as we're trying to disseminate the program, we're calling it the Resilient Parenting for Bereaved Families program. Um, and we um, did some very hard-nosed um, um, randomized controlled trials. 
I believe in that. I believe that we need to bring the best of science to inform people who are trying to help and to give them tools that, um, that can really make a difference in people's lives. So the next step, and this is another critical lesson that I think I've learned, is the importance of long-term engagements with the systems of support. <clears throat> um, in divorce and in bereavement, the systems are very different, obviously. Uh, in divorce, uh, it's the family court or the divorce court. Um, and in bereavement, it is, it turns out it's it's not so much the funeral homes, although many of them do wonderful work, um, but it is grassroots um, community-based organizations that are devoted to working with bereaved families. And they're all over the country and all over the world. Um, and we have a long-term relationship with a wide range of these organizations. We've gotten involved in the National Alliance for Grieving Children. Uh, we've been involved with the Association of Death Education and Counseling. Um, and um, that kind of long-term involvement leads you to understand how the tools that you developed in, let's say, your randomized trial might translate into a service that could actually be integrated into a system of care that's already out there, but it's not informed by your science. So that's kind of the trick um, as far as I'm concerned. And trick is, a, is, a, is, a, is, is the wrong word, but that's the task, if you will, is now to figure out how what you, you've learned can fit in and become integrated into a, um, a, these systems of care. In our case, in the case of bereavement, um, that's required a lot of adaptation. There's a lot of trial and error, and that's where long-term commitment comes in. We originally tried the, um, the full family bereavement program, tried it in a couple of agencies that were excited to, to join with us. We found that they could do it, um, but really it strained their resources. These are agencies that are by and large under-resourced. Um, so we, over the last number of years, have adapted our program to focus on those aspects of our program that we have evidence our core are most responsible for the positive effects that we've shown um, and design them or redesign them so that they could be readily delivered in systems of care that already exist. And that requires partnership. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and and evaluation. You have to see whether it, whether it works. Um, so that's where actually we made the transition from the family bereavement program to the resilient parenting for bereaved families program, um, which now focuses on heavily on 
um, supporting bereaved caregivers and parents to support their children and themselves. Uh, because one of the things we learned in our research, although it was originally designed to prevent mental health problems in bereaved children, was equally effective in preventing mental health problems of the bereaved parent. So in a nutshell, that's kind of an overview of, uh, of why these two areas and kind of what we've learned along the way. And kind of in a nutshell, what we've learned is our place in the broad system of bringing validated tools and integrating them into existing service systems that impact the people that we care about. Thank you.